I'm so glad you're here. Welcome. We're in week two of this series that we launched last week called Visioneering. And uh, if you have a Bible, you can jump ahead of me and get to the book of Nehemiah. Um, you can find that in your Bible. But uh, it's an interesting weekend. Like we mentioned, we're missing a lot of the ladies this weekend, um, which means we're probably missing a lot of the fellas. Uh, but, uh, but I am so glad that you guys are here. Uh, it was foggy out there this morning. I, I, it felt like a Bay Area Sunday for me. When I growing up near San Francisco, that fog rolled in, except for it didn't get this cold usually there. And so, uh, so I was like, oh, wait, no, I'm not in Kansas anymore. <laughs> but uh, it, was, it was good. I'm glad you guys braved the fog and came out uh, to be with us this morning. I was thinking about how important this week is and uh, this series is that we're in right now. If you're just dropping in with us and catching us here, I'm so glad you're here. You're hearing the heartbeat of what God is doing in this body, what we believe he's doing in this neighborhood, in this community and beyond. And so this is an incredibly good time to jump in and begin to hear the story of where we're going as a church and also where you are going in your life as we talk about vision. And, and last year we introduced this theme, this, this word visioneering, which maybe you've never heard before because I don't think it's a real word, um, <laughs> but uh, this concept of visioneering that, that you have to engineer your vision, that God wants to put vision into you and help you work that out. And we spent a lot of time uh, in Proverbs uh, 29, 18, this idea that where there is no vision, people perish. And without vision, people perish. And so this critical principle that, that God understood that vision was going to be an incredibly important part to us surviving here on earth. That we had to be moving together towards something. And last week, we began to break open the vision for this next season of life and church here. What we have affectionately called Celebration Center 2.0. Um, but what I have kind of leaked to you eventually is going to become uh, Discover Church. And we want people to discover that church is not just what happens on Sunday. Come on, church. Church is a group of people together moving towards Jesus. And when we do that, we're being the church. And so last week we talked about that. And, and last week I also introduced to you this incredible tension as we've been praying for and fasting and, and seeking the Lord, trying to figure out, God, what is the vision piece? What is this church here for? And this picture that God's begun to give us about the, the, the and I, I'm getting preachy, I'm emotional because I'm so excited about this information kind of beginning to become normal. By the time we launch 2.0 completely, you're gonna be tired of me talking about this, which is great. But this picture that God's kind of given us about this place we live up here in the Pacific Northwest. It's an interesting place, isn't it? It's this place where for some reason we have elevated as a value this idea that, oh, when the weather hits, we just kind of retreat for several months at a time. And we leave kind of relationship and we're fiercely independent people anyways and we just kind of got this. Yet when I look in the scriptures, even in a perfect environment in the Garden of Eden, God looked down at Adam and said, you know what's not good when you're alone? So that's not good. Yet somehow we've elevated as a value in this community and in this culture, in this Northwest, this idea that we're tough and isolated and we can do it. And yet we have an enemy like a lion who's roaring out there looking for whom he could devour, the scripture tells us. And you know who's easy to pick off? The sheep that's not with the shepherd and not with the flock. You wanna study anything about predators? You know what they do? They try to isolate someone. The first step that you're in danger, you're isolated. Yeah, here we are in this culture that's telling us isolation is normal. 
And so our vision statement last week, I kind of lifted that out for you as this idea that we want to help people move from isolation to community. If we're doing that, then maybe we're doing something. And so here we are in this story about vision and, and, and visioneering. And last week I left you with some tension and some questions and this idea that uh, vision starts with recognizing often a problem or a tension. And then not every problem is vision, but all vision starts as recognizing a problem. And that problem becomes something that you can't get away from. This tension that has to be resolved. What simply has to be different than what is right now? And so we left it kind of in this tension of how do we start cultivating what our personal vision is. And I began to introduce what our church vision is. But now I want to take us a little bit further. We're in the book of Nehemiah because Nehemiah was introduced to this incredible tension. That sometimes there is a time between when God begins to put tension and vision into your life and God gives you the picture of how you're going to solve that. Ever had God put something, a dream, a vision into your life, and you thought, that's amazing, but there's no way I could do it. I don't have the time. I don't have the resources. I'm not the right person, I don't think. What do you do in that time? How do we manage that in the meantime, in between time? I was thinking about the first time God gave me vision for something that I thought I was supposed to do. It was 1994 good year. Come on. I'm a going between my sophomore and junior year of high school. I've been a follower of Jesus for about a year and a half, trying to figure it out a little bit. I got saved in uh, middle school, high school. And uh, for the first time, someone said, you should do this. And I wanted to do it. And I thought it might be from the Lord. And our youth group was going on a mission trip. How many of you ever been on a short-term mission trip? Oh, not nearly enough of you. Not nearly enough of you. We got to solve that. Come on, Charlie. Help me. We were going to Mexico to do a short-term missions trip. And it had never occurred to me that part of my faith might mean going to people who weren't even close to my neighborhood and sharing Jesus and being Jesus for them. It never occurred to me. I was young and I heard this vision we're going to take a group. We're going to go down there. We're going to reach kids. We're going to talk to people. We're going to share Jesus. Plus, we're going to stop at Disneyland, and there's a fun youth conference on the way. <laughs> Full disclosure. And I thought, that's going to be awesome. It was in the summer, and we also had summer camp. And I remember the trip was going to be very expensive, Some, somewhere around $450. In 1994 dollars, that's like $1,450, right? <laughs> and so I went to my parents specifically my, uh, my stepdad, and I said, hey, there's this big youth event that I want to go on, and it's going to be a mission trip, and we're going to go to Mexico. And he goes, no. And I was like, wow. I didn't even get all the, like, I didn't even make my pitch yet, right? He goes, I ain't paying for that. I said, well, that's, that's not what I'm asking. I just, let me tell you the thing, right? And I start beginning to cast the thing, and he goes, no. He goes, listen, if you want to go to camp, fine, but I'm not paying for that, so you can't go. And I remember my soul just like dying because I had this vision and I had this dream and I had run up against an obstacle, an immovable force, a person in my life who had authority, power, and abused that power from time to time. And we, had, we, we already had this fragmented relationship. And so the fact that I was going to him was a big deal. And he says, no. And I remember we're sitting in his cab of his truck in front of the house. And I looked over at him 
That's the first time I ever talked to him like this. I was always afraid of him. He was a caholic. We talk about this from time to time. Whatever particular thing that he was addicted to at the time, he was an alcoholic, workaholic, whatever alcoholic that it was. So I was lived in general fear of him. And so his word was final in my life, right? No. But here for the first time was this sense that maybe God was calling me to something and I might have to stand up for myself in order to start the process. I didn't know how I was going to do it, but I just said, I said, listen, I didn't say it quite that way because I was afraid. In my head, I said it that way. In practice, it was probably a little more meek than that. But somehow between kind of the emotion and the 15-year-old brain, I said, if God provides a way for me to go, will you stop me from going or can I go? And he looked at me and goes, you're not responsible. You're not this. You're not this. You're not this. I was like, okay. I said, but if God provides a way, will you stop me from going? He goes, no, I won't stop you from going. That was the end of the conversation. So I get out of the truck. I'm like emotional because I've never stood up for myself in a way like this before. And here I am with this vision of what I'm supposed to do. And no plan. No plan in my 15-year-old heart of how to do this. No, no system. I didn't have a job. I didn't currently have a paper route or a source of income. I wasn't selling drugs. Come on now. And $415, $50 might as well have been $4,500. More as well have been $45,000 in my personal economy at that time. And I remember thinking, God, if this is going to happen, then you've got to do something. And I didn't know how to pray. I was a baby Christian, just a baby in general. And I started praying. I said, all right, God. Whatever you want to do. If you're in this, because I'm out there now, will you make this happen? I'll speed up this story a little bit. <laughs> What's funny is I, I was doing that, and within about two weeks, one of my friends said, hey, have you ever thought about doing, and it was this weird paper out. Now, you got to remember, this is the 90s. And so the internet isn't as big of a thing yet. And it used to be the case that they used to hire people to deliver the ads that go in the Wednesday paper to the houses that don't get the paper. That used to be a job that you could get, right? And so someone who doesn't get the newspaper, but they still want them to get the ads. Now I don't think they print that. It's probably a waste of money and time. But I got this paper out that it was about 500 papers a day, but it was one day a week. And they had to be delivered on Wednesday. And so I, I, I said yes, because I was trying to make some money. And this is funny where it goes. But then I needed a bike. And I was like, I don't have a way to deliver these. And I can't carry 500 papers, right? It's going to take me three days to do these 500 papers. And then, and, you know, through a, a hilarious series of things, God gave me this crummy bike. And I had this crummy bike and this lousy job, newspaper. And I started having, I had to, before school, I had to wake up like two hours before school and roll these papers up and put them into these little plastic things. And then after school, I would ride that busted bike around the neighborhood and I'd deliver these papers to people who didn't even want them. It was the dumbest, silliest job and it paid me like 25, 30 bucks a week, something like that. And I started doing it week after week after week, all the time praying, God, if you want me to go, just open a door, make it happen, show me a way, give me a path, help me figure it out, how to do it, how to do it. And I'm doing it and this is, it's the dumbest job. I hate this job. I'm doing it, I'm doing it, I'm doing it, I'm doing it, I'm doing it. And um, banking money, banking money, banking money, banking money. I've been doing it for months now. And I, and, I, and I get to this one day and I've loaded up this bike. I've got 500 papers in these two big sacks across the handlebars of this bike. And I'm riding to the neighborhood where I'm supposed to deliver and the bike snaps in half. 
It just the fork just burnt down. It landed on the wheel. The wheel bent over. I went flying over the top of the bike, landed on my face. I'm like scarred from, from or scraped from here to here, all over the place. And I looked at this and I'm like, God, why aren't you helping me? And I took that bike and I threw it and the papers in a dumpster and I quit. And that was the end. And I went home and I went to my thing where I had kept my money and I counted the money and I had about $460. And I called them up, and I'm like, I quit your stupid job. I called them up like this. It was old school phone, right? It didn't ring like this, but it was on the, come on. And I quit that stupid job. Why am I telling you this hilarious story? Because in the midst of having vision and having a dream, I had to just activate a plan. And it didn't look like a plan. God didn't just send me a check. Come on now. He sent me a paper out, a lousy one. And he said, you're going to need some help to do this. So here's this busted bike. And you're going to only do it but so long, and then I'm going to knock you off your bike. And that's that way you listen to me, and you're just done, and you use it for the season that you're supposed to use it. Come on now. So you do the thing that I have called you to do. Sometimes vision doesn't look as exciting, come on, in the meantime. But there's steps and things that we can do. And the first step is we pray and we plan. And so this morning I want to talk about praying and planning. And I want us to ask the question, what do you do in the meantime? In this time between tension and vision and execution in the moment. Last week we met Nehemiah. He's uh, basically, it's the end of the Old Testament. He's the last author of the Old Testament, even though it's not the last book of the Old Testament because the Old Testament is put together Differently than that, Nehemiah is historically the last writer besides Malachi, who was his contemporary at this time. And I like Nehemiah because he's a planner. He's not a priest like Ezra, who's his other contemporary. He's not a religious leader like Ezra, who called the people back to God. He's not a prophet like Malachi, his other contemporary, who spoke for God and gave them direction on how to live for God. He's a planner. He's a type A. He's a get things done. His gift isn't getting in front of people and preaching. His gift isn't getting into the word and and expounding on it. His gift is organizing and leading. Come on, church. Your gift matters in the kingdom of God. I love Nehemiah because your gift may look different. Just because you don't have this gift or that gift or whatever gift, your gift matters in the kingdom of God. Nehemiah is a picture that every single gift matters. And here's Nehemiah in this incredible moment in history. He is the cupbearer to the king of Assyria. Now, this is a fascinating thing. We went into this last week, but the Assyrians were the current superpower. And this incredibly important moment in time and history, he has this incredibly important job. Now, cupbearer is an interesting job because in my head, I always thought a cupbearer was like a, uh, like a butler, right? I always thought a cupbearer, because what a cupbearer did is you tasted the food of the king before the king ate, just to make sure it wasn't poison. So I thought that's a job you give to someone who's disposable, right? Because it's like, hey, Nehemiah, take a bite out of this bread. All right, let me watch you. Did you die? No? Okay, cool. I'll eat this bread. Take a drink out of this juice or this wine. How are you feeling? Pretty good? Let me keep an eye on you for a minute here. What's that sweat going on right there? I don't want that. Toast, toss that out. Try to drink this other one. 
right? That was the job. And so in my mind, cupbearer was not this significant of a position, but the more I studied, the more I looked at it, you got to recognize this was actually an extremely prestigious position. Why? He's next to the king all the time. And in Assyria, at this time, they worshiped the king like a god. And being in his presence was a really big deal. And for someone who was in a people group that had been conquered to be elevated all the way to the position where you have the ear of the king all the time is an incredibly respected and important position. There are some things about you that had to be true for you to get this position. Number one, you probably had to be at least uh, uh, able to appear pleasant, Right? You probably at least had to be a gifted speaker or orator or communicator because you were in constant dialogue with the king and in his court and in his house. So Nehemiah has some things going for him. He's a leader, a strong leader, and he's respected so much by this king at this time. It's an incredible picture. So during Nehemiah's time, this people group, the Jews, and we talked about this last week, who had been conquered about a generation before, and they'd been shipped off to Babylon before Babylon was conquered by the Assyrians. The Assyrians, they now have conquered both Jerusalem all the way through. They took over all of Babylon, all the way through Babylon, and they've told the Jewish remnant, hey, if you guys want to go home, that's fine, because we conquered you, whether you're here or whether you're there, we're still in charge that's fine. And so this group of people who have been conquered begin going home and Ezra leads these two trips home and they rebuild the temple. They start worshiping again in Jerusalem, which is a really big deal, but not everybody goes. People like Nehemiah who have positional authority, who have kind of uh, rose up through the ranks, they're still in the palace. And so we saw last week that Nehemiah's brother returns after a trip to Jerusalem and, and he goes, hey, tell me the state of the affairs. He pulls him aside. How are things back home? And his brother says, it's horrible. The walls have fallen down and we're under constant attack and the people of God are oppressed and attacked because there's no walls and there's no defense. He hears this tension and it moves him to prayer. And I'm in Nehemiah chapter one. I'm gonna start in verse four where we ended last week. And he says, when I heard these things, I sat down and I wept. For some days I mourned and I fasted and I prayed before the God of heaven. This is where we got our vision clarifying questions from last week. What's bothering you on the inside like what's bothering Nehemiah? What's your sense of what should be? Nehemiah's vision starts with hearing news that wounds him so much on the inside. He goes, it just shouldn't be this way. It shouldn't be this way in the city that God promised to his people and the people of God who have finally gotten to return. They shouldn't be harassed like this. They shouldn't be vulnerable like this. They shouldn't be getting attacked like this. And it breaks his heart. The Bible tells us that it drove him to fast and to pray. And it just tells us for some time. So I was trying to figure out how long did Nehemiah fast and pray. And if you get to chapter 2, if the month uh, in chapter 1 is Nisan. The month in chapter 2 is Kislev. And basically in the Jewish calendar, it's been four months. Now, four months is a long time to fast and pray. We, we did 21 days at the beginning of the year. I don't know about you, but day 22, I was like, Jesus! Four months is a long time to fast and pray. And one of the things I want to just press on here is I want you to be aware. Nehemiah does not have vision and does not have a plan until he's fasted and prayed. He has a problem, 
but he doesn't have a solution until he's fasted and prayed. And that took a while. Four months is a long time to fast and pray. Some of you have had, come on now, some tension and some, some, some uh, 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 need to figure out how this is gonna work, what God's given you, how it's gonna work itself out. And it has taken some time. And I just want you to hear me say that moving from fasting and prayer to vision is gonna take some time. It just does. We don't always have a plan right away of what to do about the thing God's put on our heart. And you can't get frustrated in that moment. Here's the principle. Vision takes time to cook. It's a slow cook thing. It's not a microwave thing. We don't like anything to take any amount of time at all. Vision takes time to cook. The vision that we have for our church has been cooking for a couple years now. We've been fasting, we've been praying, we've been coming together on worship nights, we've been hearing from the Holy Spirit for a couple of years now and we're finally, come on now, it's finally cooking. About ready to be served. Some of you are like, four months isn't that big a deal. Okay, don't eat for four months. Tell me if it's a big deal. I'm just saying. Just saying. It takes time to cook. I was thinking about when I planted the church in Oregon. There was about a year of just praying, thinking, God, what are we supposed to do? Then we landed on the ground and we prayed and, 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 and for another year, just got, how are we supposed to do it? It took two years to just get going. Sometimes vision takes some time. So don't be surprised and don't be frustrated when God's put something in your heart and you don't have a plan right away how to solve it. It might take some time. Nehemiah doesn't start with a plan. He starts with a problem and he moves to prayer. Don't be frustrated if you don't have a plan right away. And can I just say this, church? Don't start a plan if you haven't prayed. Come on, people of God. Don't start your plan and you haven't prayed yet. I love the old uh, funny kind of proverb that says, you want to make God laugh, tell him your plans. Right? It's not from the scripture, but it's pretty true because why? Because if you want to make a plan and not invite God into that process in the beginning and then ask him just for the endorsement, you're rolling the dice, guys. I believe God is fully present in the planning, but you know what? You better invite him into the process. And Nehemiah recognizes, hey, there's a tension here. Something's wrong. Something's not the way it should be. And his first reaction is, God, my heart is broken over this. What do you want to say to me about it? How do you want to direct me in this? Is there something that can be done? I love what's driving this reaction. Something's wrong with his city. Something's wrong. Something's not right. The place that God blessed his people with is under attack. The defenses are down. The people are weakened and scattered, being picked off by their enemies. Historians will tell us without the walls in the city, they would spread out and camp in tents and try to get isolated and alone. Come on, church. So that they wouldn't, when the crowds, they wouldn't be easily found. The Sumerians were invading them regularly and taking their resources and plundering them, and they were hiding. They had gone back to this place that God had called them to. They had reestablished the temple in the process of trying to worship God, but they couldn't live in community because they were unprotected. They didn't have the protection of community. And Nehemiah hears this and he's broken in his heart. This is why having a heart for our city is so important. Having a heart for our neighborhoods are so important. 
We have to move from isolation to community. I heard this quote from a researcher this week. Her name is Brene Brown. And she's talking about how desperate we are for community. She's, I don't even know if she's a, a believer or not. She's just a researcher. And she's talking about how desperately we need community, that this generation needs community more than it is ever before. And that there's so many moving parts on why we don't do it. Because to get together means we have to actually become vulnerable towards one another so that we can have our defenses up, come on now, towards the world. But we have to be willing to get vulnerable to be in community so that we can be healthy and strong. But it requires vulnerability, but we don't like vulnerability anymore. Vulnerability used to be a good thing. It's not anymore. We don't want to be vulnerable. This was her quote. Rocked my world. I'm going to let you process it of why we don't want to be vulnerable anymore. She said, this is what the research says. We're the most in-debt, overweight, addicted, and over-medicated adult cohort in U.S. history. Because of that, now I'm paraphrasing, we carry around a shame that says we're not lovable, we're not worthy of being in relationship, no one will want us. And so we withdraw. And the city's defended. And the walls are down and we scatter. I heard that and I just, it's something on me broke. And I started to pray. I was just like, man, God. We're the most in debt, overweighted, overweight, addicted, and overmedicated adult cohort in U.S. history. And because of that, we're ashamed, and so we withdraw. Nehemiah sees the city, he sees his people, and he's like, this isn't what's supposed to be. This isn't what is the enemy's attacking. And it's not what's supposed to be. Verse five. So he starts praying. Then I said, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant and love of love with those who love him and who keep his commandments. I love that this is how he starts his prayer. He's like, God, I remember who you are. I remember how awesome you are. And I remember that you've made promises to us and you keep those promises. I was thinking about the word awesome because we use awesome all the time. We use awesome for everything. That meal was awesome. Our team won, awesome. Go Niners. (laughs) Come on now. (laughs) Right? My hair looked awesome today. (laughs) Amen. (laughs) Right? We use awesome all the time. And so awesome has lost some of its wonder. And we get into the scripture and they use this language like awesome and they reserve it for the Lord. Why? Because they are recognizing what awesome really is, deserving of our awe, of honor, of glory. We hand it out, come on now, to anybody who does anything okay. I held my breath for 30 seconds. Awesome. (laughs) Are you kidding me? I'm not saying you should take awesome out of your vocabulary. I'm just telling you, we miss when we get before the power of the creator of the universe. And we're like, oh, you're awesome. We used to sing songs like awesome in this place. Mighty God. And we knew what we meant when we said awesome. So here's Nehemiah and he's like, great and awesome God. And then he says, you keep your covenant of love 
with those who love him and keep his commandments. I was thinking about the promises of God, and I talk about this from time to time. You're probably tired of hearing me talk about it, but do you recognize that you have been given promises that you are not accessing because you do not know you have them? This is why it's important that we read our Bibles, that you're not dependent on me to tell you every promise of God. Somewhere I, I heard one, uh, one estimation that there's some 3,000 promises of God in the Bible. I don't know if that's true or not. I did not have the patience to count that. <laughs> I'm just telling you, there are thousands of promises that you're entitled to. And here, I heard one pastor say it this way, and I love this illustration. Do you, do you know that there are right now about $45 billion worth of unclaimed gift cards in the United States? At this moment, and it's adding by about a billion every year is what the estimations are. Every year, about an additional billion. So, so people are given gift cards, and those gift cards aren't getting used, right? And right now, just floating around in sock drawers and in junk drawers and in wallets at the bottom of wallets and wherever you throw the gift cards that you got, there are literally $45 billion. Come on, Powerball got nothing on that. $45 billion of unclaimed gift cards out there. Each one of them, come on now, a promise that you can use that it's good in some place. But we don't access them. Just like there are some 3,000 promises available to you in the word of God, just sitting there unclaimed, unaccessed. And you're going through situations. You're saying, God, I never, I never felt so alone. How come you've abandoned me? And he's got a promise. I'll never leave you nor forsake you. He's got a promise for you in there. You're saying, God, my needs, I don't know how my needs are going to get met. And he's got a promise in there. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And all these things will be added unto you. And there's promise after promise after promise after promise for you available, just like unclaimed gift cards. And Nehemiah goes, you're the God, come on now, who guarantees the gift card, who guarantees the promise. Maybe that's all you needed to hear this morning. Nehemiah 1.6. Let's keep moving here. He says, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess, this is so good, the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We have acted wickedly towards you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and the laws that you gave your servant Moses. I love that he includes himself in the problem. At no point up to this do we have any indication that Nehemiah is anything but a godly man who's following God and serving. We have no indication of any of those things. He certainly isn't the reason that the uh, generation before him got kicked out of the promised land. He wasn't alive for that. He has not anything really to do with the current group that's there, that's returned home. He doesn't have much to do with that. But he includes himself in the problem. He says, we haven't, not they. I confess, not them. This is crazy language. 
It's this crazy language that he takes responsibility. Let me give you a quick history lesson. History lesson time with Pastor Mike. You guys know this if you've been in your Bibles, but this is, I want you to catch what's happening through time to get to Nehemiah. This is like the story of the Old Testament. Just quickly, we know God created, come on now, Adam and Eve. He started this story, this love story, this relational story with mankind, his creation. They rejected, rebelled. Everything goes asunder. They're kicked out of Eden. Pretty soon we jump ahead and we see Noah. Sin has taken root in the world and it's so wicked that God's like, I can't keep contending with this. I have got to wipe the deck and the story of Noah happens and Noah uh, and his family are spared and God purges the earth with the flood. And then he looks at them and he says, you're gonna have to be fruitful and multiply now. And I'm gonna give you uh, not just the plants, but also the animals to eat. You're gonna like re kind of constitute the planet. And they begin to do that. And we move forward and we meet Abraham and Abraham's living in this land of, uh, of Ur and he's got a people group now. And God says, you're gonna be my specific special people. If you'll follow me, I'm going to give you a land that's flowing with milk and honey. I'm going to send you to this place that is inheritance for you. And Abraham, by faith, responds to God. And he begins this journey. And he tells Abraham, you're going to be the, the uh, there's, your, your people are going to be like the stars in the sky, like the sands. Uh, and there's going to be so many of them. And Abraham doesn't even have kids. And finally, he has a kid. And then we meet through that line, Joseph. And Joseph, you know his story. Right, Joseph's got a dreamer, and his brothers are like, "He's this punk is always dreaming things, and Dad loves him too much, so we're gonna push him in a hole." They push him in a hole, and then they're like, "You know, he'll probably die in that hole. Let's not kill him. Let's sell him." And he gets sold into slavery, and he ends up in Egypt, and he has this incredible, crazy journey of learning to hear from God and 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 wait for his dream to happen. And so Joseph's story happens, and and God elevates him to the number two position in all of the land and the most powerful nation on earth, Egypt at the time. And a famine happens, and the people of God, his brothers, come, and they end up moving to Egypt. So the people of God are now in Egypt, and then after Joseph and his family. There's a new uh, pharaoh, and he doesn't like, come on now, these Israelites that have all moved into Egypt, and he enslaves them, and they're overpopulating his land, and they're too powerful, and they have too much favor from God. So he enslaves them, and he starts winnowing them down, trying to get their numbers to controllable numbers because they're, they're too populated in his, in his people. And then suddenly we hear the Moses story, and Moses is born, and it has this incredible moment in a burning bush, and God says, you're going to go pull my people out of Egypt and take them back home to the promised land. So Moses shows up and he's like, let my people go. And God does miracle after miracle after miracle. The Red Sea parts. They march into the wilderness. They get out into the desert. And then they get afraid. And 40 more years of in the meantime happens and a generation dies and then Joshua comes and he leads them into the promised land. And now they're in the promised land and they're establishing themselves as a nation and they're Israel as one nation. And uh, we have this time of the judges that happens and this, this cycle of behavior happens where they trust God and God says, as long as you keep trusting me, I'll be with you. But the moment you turn to other gods, that you're going to lose the provision and the blessing of what I've given you. And they go through these crazy cycles, and they trust God, and things are going well, and then they reject God, and things start taking. And God raises up another judge, and then they trust God. And then that, so the cycle of pattern happens through the book of Judges. And finally, they're like, we just need a king. And God's like, you don't need a king. You've got me. And they're like, we need a king. Everyone else has a king. So in comes the first king, and it's Saul, and he stinks at it. So they try to make a king the way they think a king should look. They just pick him because he's tall and the best looking. And, uh, and that doesn't go well. 
And eventually God's like, I'm going to have to provide you a king that has my heart. And here comes David and the kind of the glory day of the people of Israel. And they're in Israel and David is successful and they're winning battles. And finally, there's like peace for the only season of peace they really have in the land. And then he dies and hands it off to Solomon. And Solomon is wise beyond uh, all measure in every area except for his relationships because he just gets married again and again and again. And he has tons of concubines. And if you don't know what a concubine is, you can ask Pastor Chris later. He'll, uh, he'll give you a, a, a clear uh, definition, explanation of that. But, but Solomon's out of control. And then at the end of that, there's all these foreign wives and concubines have re-brought into the people of God this sense of other gods and serving other people's gods and other cultures. And they've abandoned kind of the heart that God had for them. And as soon after Solomon's dead, the, the, the nation rips apart into north and south. And there's a series of kings and most of them are trash and a couple are pretty good. But finally, God keeps saying, if you keep turning away from me, eventually you're going to get wiped down. You're going to lose the land that I promised you. And, and all of the things you've had, and they don't believe it. They just keep on turning from God, and here comes Babylon, and they get wiped out and taken off into captivity, and that's Daniel's time. And then from Daniel to Nehemiah, they're now headed back in. That was pretty good. Did you guys catch that? There's your history lesson. All right, now you have to applaud for the, that's just the word. That's if you read it. It's the story, right? And so Nehemiah's praying, and he's saying, listen, I get it. We keep whiffing. He's taking credit and responsibility before the Lord for the fact that not just him, but his community and his people have constantly run away from the heart and the love of God to chase other things. And he, on behalf of the entire people group, just says, I feel it and we're sorry. And he owns it and he takes responsibility. And I was just struck by this. The more I read this and thought about it, I just thought, we don't take responsibility for anything anymore. Not even ourselves, let alone for the community or our neighborhood. We don't, we don't have a sense of corporate responsibility like we used to have. Responsibility for our neighbors and for our neighborhood and for our community being okay. It's hard to take that responsibility. And Nehemiah steps up before the Lord and says, listen. Not everything that's out there is directly my fault, but I'm part of either the problem or the solution, and I want to be part of the solution. So he repents and he prays, believing that that's the first step to affect change, and you want to see our neighborhood and our community turn towards Jesus. Some people of God are going to have to step up and say, yeah, it's on us. And there's a story and a history here, and we're a link in that chain, and it can change because the people of God step up. I want to be part of that solution. Verse eight, he says, remember the instruction you gave to your servant Moses saying, if you're unfaithful, I'll scatter you among the nations. That's the history. But if you return to me and obey my commands, here it is. And even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I'll gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as dwelling for my name. He's like, no matter how far you run, if you just turn back, I'll bring you home. I'll bring you home. And he's paraphrasing Deuteronomy 30 if you want to look at it. But basically, he's just saying God's promise was always that there's nowhere you can run that's too far if you'll just turn towards him. I lost my spot. Where am I at? Verse 10? Verse 8? 10. They are your servants and your people whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. This is hilarious because they haven't been his servants and his people for a generation, but he's just speaking truth into life. 
It's like they're going to, that's what's happening. And you redeem them. Not all these people were following God. And I love this. Nehemiah sees them for who they could be, not who they are right now. He says, this is how you got to see people. If you want to see change happen, you got to look at them for who they could be. They were designed in the image of God. He's called them. He has a plan for them. Every single soul you run into has the image of Christ burned into their, seared into their existence. They were all designed in the Imago Dei, the image of God. And it doesn't matter, come on now, where they've been or what they've been through. Just like it didn't matter where you had been or where you'd been through. That Jesus is in the redemption business and God can make a people out of anybody. I'm just saying. So I wonder how we see people. Do we see them just where they currently are? Or do we see who God designed and where they could be? Verse 11, I'm almost done because he's almost done praying. He says, Lord, let your ear, this is so good. You should underline this. Let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this, your servant, and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Listen to this. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man, and I was cupbearer to the king. So after all of this prayer, Nehemiah prays, I'm going to need some success. I'm going to need some favor in the presence of this man. What did Nehemiah pray for at the end of all this? He confesses that there's in this corporate sin, this community-wide rejection of God. He confesses that he's part of the community and he owns that. He recognizes that God is awesome and that he has a plan for every soul and every soul that God created could be part of this redemptive process. He says, that's what's going on. And then he says, I'm gonna need something. And he prays for two things and it's crazy what he prays for. He prays for opportunity and he prays for favor. This is a crazy thing to pray for. Only an admin would pray this way. Someone who recognizes systems and how things come together. Because if I'm praying, I'm praying for manna from heaven, fire in a cloud, water to part. I'm praying that, you know, the enemies of God will just fall over and die. I need some supernatural crazy stuff. I need 10,000 angels to show up and demonstrate their faithfulness. And God does and can do that. But that's not how he always moves. Sometimes God moves by opening opportunities and giving you favor. And Nehemiah recognizes that the hand of God is just as present when an opportunity opens, come on now, or when favor shows up. And we get stuck sometimes praying for the miracle, not recognizing that the miracle is the opportunity. The miracle is the favor. The miracle was the paper route and the bike. It wasn't a check from heaven. It wasn't a long lost relative that died and left me exactly $450 in some will. The miracle was you can get up early and fold these silly papers that nobody wants and go deliver them to people who aren't expecting them and do this grimy, lousy job that no 15-year-old wants to do so that you can experience my favor. And then I'll knock you off that bike when you're done. <laughs> As we read the book of Nehemiah, it's strangely lacking crazy miracles. If you're looking for a burning bush, you're not going to find it in Nehemiah. You know what you're going to find in Nehemiah? Hey, you've got to forgive your neighbor his debt so that he's not out from, he can get out from under the debt that he owes you so he can start his life again in a way that's healthy. And then the guy forgives him. That's a miracle. It's filled with, hey, the enemies are attacking and they're coming to the cracks in the walls. So half of us are going to have to stand in the walls with swords like this. And then the other half are going to have to stand behind and do the work and build the wall. 
And so we're going to have to work double. You're going to have to sometimes have a sword in one hand and a plow in another ready to go. It's filled with opportunities. And then yet God, again, time and time and again, gives them favor, gives them opportunities. God's going to work through people. He's going to change hearts. He's going to give favor. Nehemiah is going to need resources. And people are kind to him with their resources who don't have to be kind to him with their resources. Opportunities. Favor. Miracles. Nehemiah saw these as miracles. I wonder if we see opportunities as miracles or not. I wonder if we do. I wonder if we miss the miraculous moving hand of God because it looks like an opportunity instead of God just doing it for us. It's going to require our partnership. It's going to require us to walk into it. Nehemiah is praying and he's fasting and he's asking God for what? Opportunities and favor. In the between, in the meantime, between when God kind of speaks a problem and you hear about something and it moves your heart and you have a clear vision or a dream, one of the things you can begin to do is pray for opportunities and pray for favor. So there's a thing I'm supposed to do, God, and I don't know what it looks like. I want to lead a missions trip. I want to go and, uh, and reach this people group, and I don't know how I'm going to do it. And you know what he says? He says, God, give me opportunities. Just open the door. I'll do it. I'm in. But you have to open the door. And until you open the door, every day I'm going to come back, I'm going to pray, and I'm going to invite you, and I'm going to say, God, I'm ready. Give me the opportunity. And then when that door opens, God, give me some favor. I'll walk up to that person. I'll ask for the thing. I'll, I'll, I'll risk it all and say, hey, is there any way that God would be stirring in your heart to help us with this? And here God bringing the opportunity and bringing the favor. He's praying and fasting. In the time between when my heart is moved by a problem, sometimes I don't have vision of how it's going to happen. I don't have the resources, but I can pray. I can fast. I can listen to God. I can look for opportunities. And I have to remember in the meantime that God always has a plan. God always has a plan. And I think we forget sometimes that God's a planning God because we feel like we have a plan and he's not doing our plan. And he's like, chill out. I got a plan. We're like, yeah, but your plan should be my plan. He's like, chill out, I got a plan. We, you know, in church world, we read this scripture a lot, but we don't really listen to the words that Jeremiah says here where he says, I know the plans I have for you. Jeremiah 29, 11 declares the Lord. He's saying, I have plans for you, plans to prosper you, not to harm you, plans to give you hope in a future. He says, then you'll call on me. I love this. We only read that verse. Jeremiah goes, then you'll call on me and come and pray to me and I'll listen to you. God says, I have a plan for you. I have a plan for you. It's a good plan. So your step is call on me, come and pray to me, and I'll listen to you. This is how you partner, right? And then listen to verse 13. You will seek me and you will find me when you seek me with all of your heart. God's a planner. He's working. And our job in the plan is to let God seek or to seek him and to pray. And then he listens and he goes, if you just seek me with all of your heart, you'll seek me and find me. I was struck by this tension. We don't do many things with all of our heart anymore. Remember when you were young and you just did things with all your heart? Like, I'm going to try out for that team. I'm going to give everything I got. It's all my heart. Right? I'm going to, you know, you got asked to be on something and do something. You're just like, oh, here's everything I got. Somewhere along the line, as we started growing up, we started learning to ration our heart. 
We thought it's wiser to ration our heart. It's wiser to just give a little bit at a time. It's wiser to just move a little bit at a time. Don't put your whole heart in this because if it breaks, right? I mean, we have expressions of wisdom, like don't put all your eggs in one basket. Why? Because if it falls down, then you got nothing. So it's better to put a couple eggs and a couple eggs and a couple eggs over here and over here and over here. And yet here's God saying, that's not how you approach me with your dreams. It's gonna take your whole heart. Some of us are stuck praying for God to give us the resources for our dream, but we haven't given our heart yet. Our heart's not in it. We got a part of our heart in it. We're given a portion, testing it, but we've wisely in our eyes withdrawn and withheld a little bit just to make sure, just in case it doesn't go. And God's saying, listen, there's certainly wisdom in not just giving our whole heart away all the time. That's not, that's, that human wisdom is from the Lord. But when it comes to God and seeking him, that human wisdom does not apply. When it comes to trusting God, when it comes to stepping out in faith, we have to give him our whole heart. When's the last time we just gave God our whole heart, let alone our heart to anything? Was it junior high for you the last time you're like, all right, God, here's everything. You know when we do it? Crisis crisis when we've exhausted all of our resources then it's like okay here's my whole heart i've hit bottom i've crashed again and i've made a mess of things here's my whole heart it takes crisis for us generally to say okay we'll drop the wisdom of this world and actually try to stretch our faith and god's saying listen in the meantime in the process, when you're waiting for the pieces of your dream and your vision to come to fruition, when you're just stepping out on faith and trusting me, you got to give me your whole heart. Because that's when you seek me and that's when you'll find me. And that's when the doors start taking open up. For Nehemiah, it took four months. It might take four years. It might take 40 years. I'm not, I can't give you the math on that. It's not a mathematical thing. There's just a process of praying and planning. I'm going to give you just a couple of steps. I'm going to jump ahead here and wrap it up because I want to give you some practical. I know I've been giving you a lot of information, but I want to give you some practical. So what are the steps? We're in the meantime. What do we do now? We got to work the plan. What steps do we take? Let me give you just three quick steps, and then, and then I'll let us go. But three quick steps, right? Number one, spend time planning a strategy. If you've already been praying, we've been talking about praying the whole time, so I didn't put it on the list, right? <laughs> Spend time planning a strategy. What do you mean plan a strategy? I don't have any of the resources. I don't have any of the tools. You know what? Nehemiah had a strategy. You're going to see in the next couple of chapters, he knew what to ask for. He went to the king and he's like, here's my list. I'm going to need wood. I'm going to need resources. I'm going to need favor. I'm going to need some letters. I'm going to need all the things that are have to happen for, for this dream you've put in my heart, God, to happen. He had a strategy. And that strategy would look crazy if he went to Charlie and said, here's my strategy. I'm going to go to the king of the Persians who have conquered us. And I'm going to say, open the vault and give me money. Give me favor. Give me resources. It'd be like insane. And Charlie would go, that's a dumb plan. Right? Because he's wise. And he would say, That's a, you better, what's plan B after the dumb plan doesn't work? Because none of the pieces had fallen in place for that to happen. And so some of you are not willing, come on now, to put a strategy to move towards your vision because you can't see how it could possibly happen without the resources. And God's saying, you never know when the opportunity and the favor is going to happen. So go ahead and start planning like it is. You know the plans I have for just this property? Whew, I'm always planning. I drive people crazy telling them stories about what I could do with this property once God brings little resources in. Come on now, I'm believing. God wants to do some amazing things here to make us a resource to the community. It's gonna be awesome. I don't have the resources yet, but I'm praying and I'm planning. So when the resource comes, we can come together and say, what about this? Everyone will go, yeah. And we'll start, that's awesome. Why wouldn't, I, why wouldn't I do that? That's not wasted energy. 
spend time planning. Second, oh, this one hurts. Be ready ahead of time. What do I mean by ready ahead of time? Personally, I'm talking now. Your personal preparation. I'm going to say some things. I'm just going to drop them in the room and let you deal with them because I don't have time. Be out of debt. Work yourself to a position where you're doing your finances a way that God uh, uh, has designed for us to do. If you need help, sign up for the Ramsey classes. Get involved in, in getting your personal world in order so that you have flexibility. So that when God opens the opportunity and gives you the favor, be flexible. Some of you are entirely unflexible right now. You're like, I love all this if I don't have to do anything different. Be flexible. Be out of debt. Have margins. Be rested. Be healthy. Be in relationship with people who love God and who love you. Just be ready ahead of time for when God opens the door so you can walk through it. I, I don't have a lot of time, but I just, I've been in so many relationships with people who have had dreams and, and, and good dreams and good plans. And then doors open. They're like, oh, I can't do it right now because I'm overcommitted or I don't have margin. I don't have rest. I can't do any of the things. And they've got all these good reasons. Killing the dream. Just saying. Nehemiah positioned himself. He was close to the king. He worked on his skill set. He had a plan. He had margins. He had the ability to do it. The last thing is ask what I can be doing now. This is corporately now, not just personally. If you have a dream but not the resources, what can you be doing now? Can you take a class? Can you put together some team members to pray? Can you, can you get involved in something that, that would give you more skills and get you ready for there? Can you, can you t- start taking steps today so that when God does open the door? I read a story about a guy, and he, he just knew God was going to do something huge in his life. But he didn't know what, and everyone kind of was making fun of him because he was living very, he had, a, he had a corporate job, so he had to wear like a suit all the time, but he was driving this, this horrible station wagon car that was all falling apart, and he said, you know, they can't make me buy a nice car even though they make me buy a nice suit. And he was keeping his resources liquid so that he would have opportunity when it was time. He knew God had a plan for him, and so he was just trying to get position, but he didn't know what the plan was. And so it was crazy talk, right? I'm just getting myself ready. I know God has a plan. I'm going to learn this skill. I'm going to build on this and I'm going to do all the things. I'm going to keep myself ready. And then boom, here comes the opportunity. And everyone's like, oh, he's so lucky. He wasn't lucky. He just knew God had spoken something to him. And he was in the meantime, just how do I position myself so that when God opens the door, I can walk through it. If God opened the door for you today, the opportunity, come on now, it wasn't manna from heaven, but you had to take the step. Could you take the step? Could you do, are you positioned to do that? That's the tension. That's the meantime. That's the thing, right? Just saying, would you stand with me? I'm gonna let you guys get out of here. I know I've been working hard on you today, but this is how vision gets formed. It's gotta cook. It's, it's gotta take us through some things. We gotta process. Here's what I know. The awesome God who created heaven and earth and created you and every soul in his image has a plan for you. He's got a plan for all of us as the body of Christ. And as we pray and hear his voice and seek him and partner with him, it's better than any dream that we could have dreamt on our own. And it's available for you. So let's start working the plan. Let's be like Nehemiah. Let's build this into our lives. And for the next couple of weeks, we're going to still just keep on unpacking this. And I'm going to keep giving you tools on how to put feet on your vision. And we're going to walk through some of that. But, but here's the thing. It doesn't happen if it doesn't start with praying and planning. That's the step first, right? We saw the problem. We sensed it. And then we pray 
and then we plan. And so I'm going to be praying for you that those, come on now, unclaimed gift cards and promises of God would become real in your life this week and in these coming weeks, that God would begin to stir up dreams. You're going to hear opportunities that you never even thought of as opportunities and, and things that open doors as opportunities where you go, well, that's an opportunity for someone, but there's no way it's me that God would give you favor. And you go, I don't know, man. I, don't, I never saw myself that way, yet there's this door. Oh, and that God would open those doors for you. So Jesus, break our expectation. Help us to lift you up in your heart. Strengthen our hearts for this season. Strengthen us for what you're planning to do. Strengthen us for this call that you've given us into this neighborhood to, to begin to help people move from isolation to community because it's not good to be alone, to bring us in as family and begin to love people who God, come from all kinds of different backgrounds, but they're created in your image and they're planted right here in our neighborhood. We want to love them. We want to reach them. And we want them to discover that church isn't just this thing we do on Sunday. Come on now. It's all of us moving together towards you. And when that happens, oh man, it can change cities. It can change cultures. It can break bondage. It can set people free. It can release dreams. And that's what we want to be a part of. So we love you. We thank you. I pray for our ladies that are driving home today through foggy weather. Just bring them home safe, I pray in the name of Jesus. And, uh, Pray that we would enjoy and spend time with our families and you strengthen us in Jesus' name. Amen.